We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, this week in our early morning prayer, our series, we are going to kind of trace the last week, the last week of Jesus' ministry, especially in Jerusalem. It's called the pathway to the cross. And we're going to select specific passages from the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at all the, these different interactions that Jesus has before he actually dies on the cross. So my goal today is to cover from Mark 1 to Mark chapter 10. Um, and it's pretty simple. In fact, if you just go to Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is kind of the thesis statement of the gospel of Mark, that it is really about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and it is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Mark is trying to communicate, that he's not just trying to bring these fancy stories or just, uh, just amaze us with all these crazy details about Jesus' ministry, but he has one goal in mind, and that is for us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, from chapter 1 through chapter 8, it's all about Jesus being the Son of God, meaning that he is God, that he's not just a man, that he's not just a supreme uh, human being, but he's actually God. He is divine. Right? The very moment that he gets baptized in chapter 1 from heaven, we see that uh, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and we see the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased in. And then Jesus starts his ministry. He calls people to repentance. And then what happens is, just time after time, he heals people, he dries out demons, he, he provides for people, he exercises authority over the wind and the waves, Basically, people are recognizing that there's something different about this guy, that he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a good man, but he is actually the son of God. So he calls his first disciples, you know, they follow along um, Jesus in this journey for three years, and when you get to Mark chapter 8, we're already at Mark chapter 8, uh, when you get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks a very important question. You know, everyone's just talking about Jesus. Jesus is kind of the celebrity in, in Judea. And, you know, people are wondering, who is this guy, really? You know, is he the prophet? Is, the, is he Elijah? Is he, you know, uh, John the Baptist? Who is this guy? And, and everyone's talking about uh, Jesus. And Jesus asked the question to his disciples, well, who do you think I am? And Simon Peter, he stands up from the crowd and he says, well, Jesus, you are the Christ. That you are the one. You are the Messiah the anointed one, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, just we believe that you're the one. And Jesus, you know, he, he, for the first time, he acknowledges that, yes, he is the Messiah, and for the first time, he reveals his plan to die. The very moment that the disciples understood that he is the Son of God, Jesus says, well, you're correct, that's right, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and by the way, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to die. And, and in three days, I'm going to rise again. And in the Bible, something ish, interesting, Peter gets a hold of Jesus. And the Bible says Peter started to rebuke Jesus. No, it's not Jesus rebuking Peter. Peter starts to rebuke Jesus. Why? Because Peter thinks Jesus is crazy. Right? Because in Peter's mind, he thought that Jesus was this warrior messiah, this king messiah who would come and, and drive out the Romans and free the nation of Israel he thought he was the one who would save uh, God's people. So he was thinking, man, Jesus is going to form an army. He's going to kind of bring, bring out the troops or do something to drive out these evil Roman soldiers from our land. 
And so Peter is, is telling uh, Jesus, hey, Jesus, you got to wake up. You know, you know, you're the Messiah. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to reign. But in return, Jesus rebukes Peter. And then he says, not only am I going to die, but if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. I'm not the only one who's going to die, but you guys are actually going to die. And now we enter into this new chapter where the discussion is no longer, you know, who is Jesus? Everyone knows that Jesus is the Son of God, but the question now is, what is the mission of Jesus? Everyone knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And then from chapter, the end of chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10, Jesus has this kind of segment where he is kind of teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God teaching about uh, how, how marriage and divorce, teaching about uh, temptations of sin, teaching about all these different things, how to view children. And he's teaching one thing after another, telling them that the kingdom of God is so radically different that if you want to follow me, you have to lay down your old ways and you have to pursue me in a new way. And then we come to today's passage. For the third time, Jesus, he reveals his plan. He says, hey guys, I know you've been faithfully following me for three years, and that's great. We had a great run. But he says for the first time that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. For the very first time, he reveals the location of which all this is going to take place. He says, I'm going to be condemned by the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the chief priests, and they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, um, and to Pontius Pilate, and they're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. Uh, They're going to flog me. Ultimately, they're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. And after three days, I'm going to rise. He's laying out the perfect plan, right, as the Messiah. Now, um, I don't know if you watched Infinity War. When Infinity War first came out, it was such a big deal, right? And soon, we're going to get the second kind of part of Endgame, right? But I remember when Infinity War still came out, like when it first came out, I was so excited. I'm a a big Marvel fan, right? So I was very excited, but I had Timothy, and and a lot of times it's really hard if you have a kid to go watch a movie. Um, So it's been about like two weeks since the movie came out, and whenever someone's trying to talk about Infinity War, I just remove myself. Because I don't want to hear the plot, right? I know that someone is supposed to die. I heard all these different things like, you know, Captain America's going to die. You know, Iron Man's going to die. Someone's going to die. It's going to be something crazy. And, th- and then, you know, my wife tells me that she read the plot. <laughs> and, 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 and I know, I understand that that's her thing. She likes to read the plot before she goes to see a movie so that she doesn't miss any details or all that. And, and I respect that. But when she said that, like this question inside of me, you know, it was just, I, was just, I was just had this question that I was, I was dying to ask, you know, you know who actually dies? You know, that, that's what I wanted to know. And, and then so I was like, oh, should I ask her? Should I ask her? And I finally asked her, you know, don't, don't spoil the plot for me. Just tell me who dies. And, and she just says, do you really want to know who dies? And, and I was like, yeah, I really want to know who dies. And I don't know if anyone uh, hasn't seen the movie yet. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it. Just cover your ears right now. Everyone dies, <laughs> and that just spoiled everything. And at that point, I was like, "Oh man, okay, I gotta go read this plot." <laughs> and then I, took, I go online, I read all the details about the movie, and finally, I actually go see the movie because I'm such a big fan. And I'm sitting there, and and that's the first time I actually read the plot before I watched the movie. And it was it, it was it was not exciting. Everything was predictable, right? I knew exactly what was gonna happen in each in each scene. Um, it's because I knew in advance. 
No, Jesus, what he's doing right now is he's giving the full plot, right? He's giving all the details that it's later on. It's not going to be a surprise uh, what happens to him um, in Jerusalem. He's revealing his ultimate plan to the disciples that he's going to die, and in three days he's going to rise again. But notice what happens next. This guy named John and, and, and James, the two inner circle you know, disciples, the sons of Jebedee, um, two men who are very close to Jesus, they come up to Jesus in a secret manner. Um, and ha- they have a request in verse 35. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, in other words, they're saying, Jesus, we have something to ask you, um, a favor to ask, but before we ask, you got to promise me uh, you're going to say yes. Now, this is a trick that we use a lot, especially when we were children, right? Uh, if we have to go somewhere and we know that our parents are not going to approve of it, or if we want to buy something and we know that our parents are not going to buy, uh, buy, buy that for us, we always come up with this statement. We say, hey, Mom, Dad, you know, I have something to ask, but before I ask anything, I want you to promise me you know, you're going to say yes. And, of course, the parents are like, oh, okay, I want to know what's going on. And they say yes, okay. And then you reveal your big plan. Oh, I want to have a sleepover or I want to go on this trip. You know, can I stay, stay out till, like, uh, midnight and all these different things? You reveal your crazy plan. And then your parents are like, no, 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 absolutely not. And then you bring out that trump card. Well, you said you promise. You promise to say yes. So, you know, James and John... They have, they're having this very sneaky mentality, right? They know that their request is, is, is they, there's something wrong about it, right? They know it's pretty ridiculous. So they come up with this, this old trick. They say, hey, Jesus, you know, I have a favor to ask, but before you say anything, you know, just promise that you'll say yes. And then finally, Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to say yes, but what do you want to do for me? Very wise of Jesus, right? And so James and John are saying, okay, here it goes. Um, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So basically, they are saying, Jesus, we want a VIP seat in heaven. We want the best seat in your kingdom. We understand that you are the Messiah. We understand that you're the Son of God. We understand that you are walking into Jerusalem to change the world upside down. We fully trust that you are our Savior. Therefore, when everything is finished, right, when everything is done, completed, when you are reigning as king, can you remember me? And can you remember my brother? And can you place me and my brother on your right, on, on your left, and give us the highest honor? We'll go with you till the end. No, for three years, these two guys have seen enough. They have seen Jesus heal sickness after sickness. They have seen Jesus drive, after de- drive demon after demon. Um, they, have, they have seen Jesus calm the winds and the seas. They even seen Jesus raise a dead little girl back to life. No, not only did they witness Jesus' power, but they also witnessed Jesus' provision. You know, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 plus with um, two fish and five loaves of bread. He fed a crowd of 4,000 uh, in a similar manner. You know, Jesus has been meeting the physical needs of the people. Not only that, that he has been meeting the spiritual needs of the people by teaching them constantly. James and John, they are sold on Jesus. They are fully committed and convicted that Jesus is the one, the promised Messiah, the one who's supposed to change everything and redeem God's people. They are firmly convinced. And when they hear the word Jerusalem, when Jesus is revealing his, 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 his big plans to die, no, they don't hear anything else. All they hear is the word Jerusalem. And they say, okay, man, we're getting closer to Jerusalem, and this is going to be it. 
Now, Jesus is going to restore everything. He's going to bring a new kingdom. He's going to reign as the king. And we got we to gotta, we gotta seal the deal. This is our opportunity to find the best, to, to secure the best seat in, in God's kingdom. So they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They firmly believe that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem to reveal and dwell in his glory. Now we learn two things about the disciples. Number one, they have selective hearing, right? <laughs> they leave every, all the details that Jesus shared, right? That I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be persecuted, you know, suffer, you know, people are going to mock me, kill me. They leave everything behind, and they just pick up on that one word, Jerusalem. And then they fit everything that they believe about the Messiah, right? They, they don't submit to Jesus' word. Instead, they fit their situation and their expectations in, onto Jesus, right? And they say, hey, Jesus, since you're going to Jerusalem as the Messiah, this must be happening, right? They have selective hearing. No, they, they are not concerned about the death of Jesus Christ. That's not even on their minds, they don't even know what that means at this point. So they have selective hearing, and that leads them to have a very distorted view on Jesus. Number two is this. They are extremely selfish, right? Even when they hear that their teacher is going to die, that he's going to be mocked um, because of their selective hearing, they are not concerned about Jesus. They're simply concerned about themselves. Even when Jesus is about to die, they are worried about finding a place, a seat in God's kingdom. No, they hope to honor Jesus. It seems like they are wanting to honor Jesus, but ultimately through Jesus, they want to be honored. Do you see that? That Jesus is just a means to fulfill their personal desires and needs. And before we point the finger, uh, finger to the, these, these two disciples about their selective hearing and selfish nature, um, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I can really identify with these two disciples. Because a lot of times, God tells me something. I read something in God's word, yet I have selective hearing. I just pick and choose the things that I like, right? I love that Jesus is love, but I don't like the fact that God is just. You know, I love the fact that Jesus, he wants to do great things for me. Yet I don't, I don't like the fact that Jesus calls me to die, right, to deny myself, right? A lot of times in Christianity, we treasure the things that we like. And we pick and choose the doctrines and the beliefs from the Bible that we, that we want to embrace. Yet we leave the things out, uh, the really important things and the things that are hard to swallow. We just set it aside and we say, hey, no, I'm just going to kind of deny this. I'm just going to embrace what I know and what I want to treasure. We have selective hearing. Not only that, we are extremely selfish in our nature. It seems like everything really at the end of the day is about me, right? I mean... We say that we follow Jesus Christ. We say that we honor God. But a lot of times we just pursue God and serve only to the, only to the capacity where we are feeling comfortable. That we are not willing to give up anything of, our, of us. That if we have spare time, if we have spare money, of course, we will invest in the kingdom of God. But for us to make, seek first the kingdom of God and seek God's will, man, I, I don't know about that. I mean, if there's something good that's going to come in return, of course I'll do that. But if, if not, if I don't see the benefit of this, nah, I'm not going to do it. A lot of times we serve Jesus simply because we want the benefits that come from Jesus. No, these two disciples, in fact, are not just, you know, asking, they're not just asking a wacky question. But it's a question that we have deep down inside of our hearts. 
if Jesus asked you this question, what do you want today? How would you respond? What would you say to him? No, we are selective and we are selfish. And because of that, a lot of times, we are unmoved by the cross. When you hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you hear every week that you know, he has died for your sins, that because of him that you can have new life, does it move your heart? Does it get you excited? No. Does it renew your passion? Does it give you a purpose in life? Or is it just good saying, but you want something more tangible, that you want more instructions rather than the gospel, that you want something that would make you feel better than something that will push you to walk in obedience. Now, a lot of times, though, that we are unmoved by the cross, that we approach this season, this Passion Week, and we're just thinking, man, it's just another week. Now, we do this every year. You know, I mean, we read the same passage, we hear the same sermon, it's getting old. Now, a lot of times, the reason why the story is getting old is not because there's something wrong with the story, it's something wrong with our hearts. Because we simply embrace the things that we want to hear, and we simply try to put Jesus in our box. Now, Jesus, he's ready to go to the cross, yet the disciples, they are still clueless, and they are still lost. But notice, Jesus here, he doesn't rebuke the disciples right away. He doesn't say, hey, you prideful sinners, you know, I, I, I taught you better, right? You know, for three years, you, you followed me, you should know better. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, instead, he says this in verse 38. Well, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So... Jesus asked a very important question. He uses two powerful metaphors, the metaphor of drinking uh, from the cup and the metaphor of being baptized. Now, both things uh, communicate the same message. In the ancient world, if you drink from someone else's cup, you're basically saying, I'm with the same fate. You know, I, whatever that person is doing, whatever that person, um, person's fate is, you know, I'm going to drink from that cup and I'm going to follow his footsteps. You know, it's a sense of identification. You know, that you're identifying with that person, right? And also, we see in the Old Testament that this cup most commonly was used to describe um, the wrath of God, judgment. You know, Psalm 75, verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, it's not sparkling wine, well mixed, and, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So this is talking about God's judgment that he's going to pour out um, on, on everyone who is wicked on this earth. He's talking about the wrath of God. So basically what Jesus is saying is, you know, James, John, you don't know what you're asking for. Because if you really want to follow me, if you really want to be great in God's kingdom, if you really want me to, to, to put you on my right and, and, and my left, then you, you got to suffer. Do you know what I'm about to do? No, in the same way, Jesus talks about baptism. And baptism is, the Greek word is baptismo, which means immersion. What he, so what he's trying to say is, I'm going to be fully immersed in death on the cross. That I'm going to be fully, be fully immersed in sin and death. And is that something that you are willing to do for me? 
No, Jesus, Jesus is warning James and John, yet James and John has no clue what this really means. So they say, yeah, 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 we can do that. And although Jesus acknowledges the fact that, yeah, ultimately later in life that they were going to follow um, Jesus' footsteps, he does say this. He does say that, well, although, you know, you are going to drink from my cup, although you are going to be baptized in the same baptism as me, well, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not for me to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, there's a lot of debate over this verse, but I think what basically Jesus is trying to say is, I don't have the power or it's not my role to designate who sits on the right and the left. What he's basically saying, even though if you guys suffer enormously, that you go through all these trials and pain for me, that's not going to grant you a, a, a position um, in, in, in the kingdom of God. So we see that glory cannot be earned by simple suffering. It requires something even more. And if you think about it, a couple, a couple days later, when Jesus dies on the cross, at that moment, his glory is in full display, that he reveals who he is and who's on his right and on his left. It's not two saints. It's not two disciples. It's two murderers. Two people who are dying on the cross. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, do you really want to be on my right and on my left when I'm in full glory? Is that something that you really want? No, in, verse, in, in, in verse 42, now Jesus, he, he calls uh, all the disciples, the, all, the rest of the disciples, they're pretty mad at James and John, not because they think they asked a wrong question, but because they feel like they asked the question that they wanted to ask, right? And they, 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 they were trying to get a better seat uh, before them. So Jesus, he calls all the disciples, and he says, starting from verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whom, uh, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus, he's calling his disciples into this radical servanthood to be slaves and servants, right? The, the word that's used here for servant is uh, Diasconus, but and it's this it's, it's this word which we get the word uh, deacon, uh, right? The English word deacon, which literally means servant, someone who cleans the te- table. That that's what it means, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be a servant. You have to serve other people. Even uh, taking a step further, he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, well, instead of exercising authority, you have to be a slave, the least of the least. No, you have to be a slave of all. No, this idea of power and position in our world, if you want to be someone significant, if you want to be successful, if you want to be some, someone important, what do you need? You need power and position. No, the people who, who have people serving them, those are the people who are important in our world. But what Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. In the kingdom of God, the people who are important are the people who are serving It's radically different. And then he gives the reasoning behind this statement. He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus explains 
this reason why you know, we should pursue servanthood rather than greatness in God's kingdom. He talks about how in God's kingdom, the people who are important are the people who serve. It's because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, Jesus, he is the eternal God. He exists before time. In Colossians 1, it says that everything was created by him and through him, that everything, he reigns over everything. No, he is the eternal word. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords, the the second person of the trinity. And yet, what he decided to do was, although he had every right to be served and to be respected by other people, he laid everything down willingly, and he came to this earth to serve sinners like you and me. And he serves, and he serves, and he serves. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. You know, instead of taking advantage of others, which a lot of rulers do, instead of trying to exercise authority through their power, which a lot of leaders do, our king is different. Jesus, our king, does not abuse his power to, to hurt others, to, 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 he doesn't use his powers to simply uh, to, to reign over people, but he uses his powers to save people. Do you notice that? That our king is so radically different. Number two is this. The reason why Jesus came, the reason why he's calling his disciples to this radical servanthood is because he came to give his life for a ransom for many. Now this word ransom, we don't use this word that often, but it's, it's, it's this word where it's this money that you pay when you're trying to free a servant or a slave or a prisoner. No, and it's a high cost. If you want to free someone, you got to pay a high cost. And what Jesus is saying is, I came to pay the price. To pay the price for people who are in bondage of sin, people who are in prison, who are, who are being ruled by Satan. No, I came to pay the ultimate cost so that I can be the ultimate ransom for many. The cost that I'm about to pay is not money. It's not, it's not anything in my position, but it's, I'm going to give my entire life. I'm going to give my body. I'm going to give my life to them to, so that I can save them. No, we see that this calling to servanthood is, is Jesus is not saying just follow my example, but he gives us the reason to, to follow as servants because he laid down his life for us. He served us to the degree where he gave up everything. You know, Jesus came to serve. Jesus, he came to save sinners like you and me. So here's the big idea today. Jesus surrendered his life so that we too might surrender to serve like him. Jesus surrendered his life so that we too might surrender to serve like him. This is why Jesus came. And a lot of times we focus on all the details that happen during Passion Week. A lot of times we focus on all the plots and the stories that happen during that final week. And we're going to definitely focus on that during our early morning prayer. But one thing I want you to know is that when Jesus is interacting with all these different peoples, right, starting from uh, the people in the temple and then the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the disciples, uh, and the Last Supper, when he's interacting with the religious leaders, the chief priests who are kind of put him to death, when he's interacting with Pontius Pilate, when he's interacting with the Roman soldiers, he's not just setting an example for us. But what we see is that those people are the very people that Jesus came to die for. Those people, the people who are trying to kill Jesus, 
the people who are trying to crucify Jesus, the people who are not understanding why Jesus came, the disciples who are so lost, all these different people, those are the very people that Jesus came to die for. He says that I, have, I came to be a ransom for many. No, Jesus, in his final week, the things that he does, it's not just a series of unfortunate events. That it's not just random events that the Bible puts together, but person after person, when Jesus is interacting with these different people, I want you to see Jesus' heart. Maybe in your Bible reading, maybe in your daily devotion this week, I want you to see Jesus' heart. When Jesus is speaking to them, he's not just speaking as a teacher, he's speaking as the ransom for many. That he, his heart is that although he might correct them, although he might reveal something that's sinful in their hearts, his, he's, his basic message is this, you know, understand that you're sinful, but also understand that I am your Savior. That is the message of the gospel, which leaves us one last question. Was the cross necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? No, why couldn't have God simply said, I forgive your sins? No, if it, this was all about simply forgiveness, no, it would have been easy for God to just say, hey, I forgive you. But here's the thing. I think a lot of times uh, we ask that question, um, if God is a good God, why does he send anyone to hell, right? We ask that question a lot. If he is good in his nature and he's loving in his nature, why does he send anyone to hell? And if you have anyone who's asking you that question or maybe you're struggling with this question, I want you to answer this question. Why would a just God have to send anyone into heaven? You know, a lot of times we pick and choose what we like about God. But we have to understand that God is holy, that he is perfect in his way, and by nature he cannot tolerate with sin, that he cannot coexist with sin. No, it's not just a matter of forgiveness. No, when we simply walk into God's presence and his perfect ways, if we are sinful, if we are imperfect, what happens is if we, just like, you know, just like when um, snow is, is standing out in the sunlight, we just melt in his presence. Because God is so holy, he is so pure, the moment right, he sees impurity, the moment that he sees uncleanness, the natural reaction for God is to deal with it. And so what God does out of his grace is instead of you know, doing that every single day, which he should rightfully do, he's storing that up. In 1 Peter, it says that God is just storing up his wrath, and he pours it out onto Jesus, every ounce of it. That God is not naive. He's not just you know, neglecting our sins, but what he is doing is he, he's waiting patiently time after time when you and I, when we fall into our sins and we fall under the same sin again, you know, he's just simply storing that up. And... When Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he poured every ounce of his judgment onto Jesus. Do you recognize that? So that you and I, instead of facing the judgment of God, instead of facing death, instead of being separated from the source of life, instead of being separated from the source of good, instead of being separated from the source of order and living in chaos, instead of being separated from, from the, source, the source of everything really that is good, we get to enjoy his presence. 
No, in order to meet, to meet this requirement, Jesus had to die on the cross because it was not just about forgiveness, but it was also about paying the right price for your sins and my sins. And just like in today's passage, we can walk like James and John, still worrying about ourselves, worrying about our position. Or we can realize that the way that Jesus prepared, that the call of Christianity is not about making a name for yourself or not about getting what you want and getting control and getting comfort, but it's really about submitting to Jesus Christ. When you realize that, then you can approach this Passion Week in a very, very different way. So Jesus, he came to die, to be a ransom for many, and that includes you. Let's pray.